0: The phone call. The murderer waited patiently through the long evening making sure that he did everything that he normally would on a Thursday night so that if anything went wrong with his careful plan no one could later point to a suspicious change of behaviour on his part. Not that anything would go wrong after all there was no one in that bucolic backwater with a mind as sharp as his. It had been a stroke of genius of his to leave his Mercedes at Dorchester station early on Wednesday and take the train into London. Once in London he had made the relatively easy journey to Gatwick where he had hired a nondescript super mini in the name of Harry Folds. Then he had driven back to Bridport to stay with his mistress overnight. It had taken a lot of travelling but it had been worthwhile to make sure that his distinctive car wasn't seen anywhere near Chidiak Whitchurch. Mary hadn't noticed the difference because he never parked anywhere near her house. He smiled at the thought that a generous dose of his wife's sleeping pills had ensured that she slept soundly throughout the excitement. Once he had killed Gregory and driven back to Bridport, he had finished the bottle of wine that he had doctored earlier. It had taken his mistress some time to waken him in the morning. He smiled at the thought that she was convinced that their oversleeping was due only to an overindulgence in wine. That morning he had driven to Gatwick and handed the hire car back. He'd taken the precaution of putting it through a car wash and vacuuming it at a service station on the way up as well as filling the tank. Public transport had got him into London in time for an afternoon meeting. All that remained was for him to take the train to Dorchester tomorrow morning and then drive to Bridport for lunch with his mistress. The important thing was for him to do everything that he usually did without any panic. If most of the pattern were whole the police would never see the gaps. It wasn't likely he reflected that they would ever suspect him anyway. The false documents in the name of Harry Folds were back into secure storage. He had taken the precaution of renting a small self-storage unit where he kept his second identity. If anything happened and the police ever solved the crime, He could disappear without trace. He might even take Mary with him, at least initially. He smiled at his own cleverness, ever since he had persuaded the crooked casino owner, who he'd mistakenly called a friend, to help him get a second passport he'd taken Mary several times to the same hotel in Bordeaux. If the police were looking for him by name, they would never find him because the locals knew and accepted him as M. Folds. He left his club at precisely 9.30 as he usually did, having enjoyed his normal mixed grill, then a few drinks in the bar afterwards. He turned down an invitation to a game of cards explaining that he'd been up late the night before talking with a friend, an announcement that was met with the usual knowing looks and lewd innuendo. It amused him that none of his friends would ever dream of telling the police that he hadn't visited the club on Wednesday night because that would mean telling the world that he had a mistress. In his circle there was still a lot of the old public school on her left, it would be the actions of a bounder tell tales out of school. Should anyone inquire about him there was sure to be someone who wrongly remembered seeing him at the club, Dining on Dover sole as he did every Wednesday that he was in London. On entering his flat he poured himself a large whiskey and then settled down in front of the television to watch the news. He decided to watch the BBC News Live and Record ITV to give himself two chances of seeing the requisite item. If there were no mention of the murder he would have to phone on some pretext or other, but he rather banked on the gruesome mutilation attracting the attention of the national news, even if they couldn't fully report what he'd done. The opening sequence showed a shot of Chidiak Witcherch's main road, and he knew that he was home free. Being a careful man, he waited and watched the whole sequence. With a snort of laughter, he toasted himself when a small sequence of film from a mobile phone showed the fat gallery manager being helped into a police car. This was even better than he'd hoped, the police would probably, view the break-in at the gallery with a presumption of Courtney's guilt. The murderer looked at himself in the mirror, he was so bright, so gifted that it sometimes hurt. As soon as the news finished, he picked up the phone and dialed his home number. The phone rang for some time and with a smile he cancelled the call and rang another number. Hello, is my wife there? He listened for a few moments then continued, I just watched the news and saw the report. To think that such a good man, as John Courtney, would kill Gregory. It's unbelievable. He listened patiently before continuing, then I think he should sue the BBC, as that's the impression I came to from watching the news. I'm so glad that he's not a suspect. Perhaps you could tell me everything you know before I talk to my wife, we both know she isn't good with violent death. He listened patiently for perhaps five minutes, occasionally asking questions so that he not only knew everything that was common knowledge in the village but could account for how he knew. One of the questions he asked revealed the fact that there had been vandalism of William's fences and a fire in the quarry. He smiled wolfishly and asked his informant to tell him where the quarry was located. After a while he bade his informant good night and spent several frustrating minutes talking to his wife. Fortunately, she took exception at what she said was his uncaring nature and put the phone down. He poured himself another whiskey and dialed a third number. After a few rings it was answered. Hello darling, he said and listened with a smile on his face. Yes, the dragon told more all about the murder in Whitchurch, unfortunately it wasn't anyone I care about. The good news is that I don't have any meetings tomorrow, so I'll be down in time for lunch. He chatted some more with his mistress and then with a self-satisfied grin stood and set about going to bed. The murder had been accomplished with great ease and the rest of his plan had fallen neatly into place. In the dark of the night. I was in a half-awake, half-dreaming state as the sights and the experiences of the day crowded through my mind preventing proper sleep. Whenever I closed my eyes, I saw Gregory's ruined face and was instantly fully awake again. It didn't help that the night was very warm with a closeness that suggested that a thunderstorm might be imminent. I hoped so because I would welcome the sense of freshness that always follows on the heels of a summer storm. I was too hot, and I had dispensed with all the bed coverings except for a light throw but still I could not achieve more than a troubled fitful rest. Eventually I nodded off and I found myself running after Elizabeth, through the moonlit streets of the town. However fast I ran she was always just out of reach. I started calling out her name and saw her start to turn only to realize that her face had been mutilated like Gregory's. I woke and lay there with my heart racing strangely disturbed by the image. I glanced at my clock radio and saw that it was just after 2 in the morning. Thinking that some distraction might help I reached out and switched it to classic FM. I pressing the snooze button several times, so that it would remain on for half an hour, I closed my eyes and listened to the music until my mind cleared enough for me to fall into a thankfully dreamless sleep. A barking an inch or so from my ear jerked me from my sleep. I opened my eyes to see Honey standing on my bed facing towards the window her hackles clearly up. I reached up and gently stroked her back until she calmed down although she was still alert. A sudden noise on the front path caught my attention and a cold sweat broke out upon my body. With a sudden movement I jumped from the bed and over to the window hoping for a clear sight of the intruder and I was not disappointed. A large fox was standing on its rear legs trying to open the lid of my bin. I rapped on the window and, startled, the fox dropped to the ground and ran into the night. I returned to bed and sat down listening to the radio glancing over and I saw with a shock that it wasn't yet 2.30. My reaction to Honey's barking and the noise outside surprised me, I realized that I had been scared. I wouldn't have admitted it to anyone else but finding Gregory's body had seriously unnerved me. I lay back down and closed my eyes there was, after all, no reason why the killer would be interested in me, they had already taken all of Gregory's work from the gallery. I was drifting off to sleep when I was suddenly wide awake again. With an embarrassing clarity I recalled telling Derek Beaton that I had copies of all the missing files on my home computer, and I had done so during a lull in conversation in a crowded pub. Knowing my hometown I realized that it would be common knowledge by lunchtime. I might as well put a notice round my neck saying next victim. Out to sea there was a sudden flash of light followed a few seconds later by a rumble of thunder. In the hallway outside the bedroom door, I heard a muffled whining sound and for a moment my heart started racing as I realized there was an intruder. The next moment, I smiled ruefully. The wine must be Henry, who, being nervous, was undoubtedly scared of thunder. I was, however, seriously rattled. I got up and put my dressing gown on and went downstairs to make myself a cup of tea, followed by the dogs. I put the radio on and turned it up slightly in the hopes that it would drown out the thunder. As soon as she heard the music, Tara appeared meowing, so I spent a moment putting out a little dried food for the cats. As my tea brewed, I looked at my little family. Honey who never worried about any loud noise was grooming Henry concerned by his fear that she did not understand. The two cats were being opportunistic with Tara pretending to be worried to get more attention and Cathkin literally butting his way between us to share in the fuss. There was something touching about the scene, and it did a lot to calm my nerves. I sat down with my tea and considered the situation carefully. It was clear that the killer was trying to destroy every copy of Gregory's paintings. It was vital, in case I had an early morning burglary or was attacked that a copy of his work was preserved so that, hopefully, someone could figure out why the paintings were so important. I carried my tea through to my study and powered up my computer. As it booted up, I checked my stationary drawer and found two brand new high-capacity data sticks. I took them out of the packaging and copied all of the files I had collected for the exhibition and Gregory's art book onto both sticks. Having spare capacity also copied the files for all my unfinished publishing projects. Once I had finished, I realized that I could be worrying unnecessarily and my initial intention to give a data stick to the police in the morning might be overreaction. I decided to wait until I saw Detective Sergeant Linton and then ask him if the police wanted it. The second data stick I decided to send to a sensible friend just in case my fears were not groundless. I quickly wrote out a note explaining the events of the day and my fears. I also asked my friend to give the data stick to the police if anything happened to me. Putting the note and stick into a small padded envelope I addressed it. On a whim I decided to take it to the post office and send it by recorded delivery rather than relying on a normal delivery. I found a thin piece of cord in my desk and hung the other data stick round my neck. There was a sudden flash of lightning, immediately followed by a crack of thunder showing that the storm was directly overhead. As if the lighting bolt had ripped the clouds apart there was a sudden drumming on the windows as the rain fell in violent, large droplets. I hoped that the police had finished in the quarry because I doubted that any forensic evidence would survive that deluge. As I wasn't feeling at all sleepy, I spent some time looking at Gregory's paintings on my computer but nothing struck me as obvious, I could see nothing of importance in paintings of crustaceans doing human things. The clock on the mantelpiece struck four and I decided to try for a couple more hours sleep. To my relief my bedroom felt cooler as the rain had sucked some of the heat from the air. I pulled the throw round me and cuddled up against honey. Lulled by the now gentle rain I quickly fell asleep only to wake up surprisingly refreshed with my mind full of convoluted dreams of a crab-killing Gregory. Copyright 2014, All Original Rights Reserved